You are listening to a podcast from The National. The extent and density was said never to have been known in any part of the world, wrote Sami Hadewi, a prominent Palestinian activist, writer and land expert, in his memoirs of the 1915 plague over the Holy Land. The locusts appeared over Jerusalem at 2pm, in such density that they eclipsed the sun. The headmaster gathered the boys and told us to hold tin cans and bang them, moving around all the time to prevent the locusts from settling on our small vegetable gardens. But nothing we did prevented the locusts from coming down, devouring everything green, even the barks of trees, in a matter of minutes. They moved into every opening and we had to shut doors and windows tightly, yet somehow they managed to get through in some places. Frightened, we gave up and retreated indoors. For days, the sky, the ground, the streets, homes and shops were full of locusts until they'd devoured everything edible and were ready to lay their eggs in the soft soil. Hadawi's memory is just one of the countless plagues of locusts that have devastated communities for millennia. Since time began, locust swarms have descended from the deserts of Africa, devastating crops, communities and lives with no warning and no explanation. Like an act of God, they have endured for years at a time with little means for mankind to fight back. Today, modern science has given us many tools for fighting locust swarms, but we still haven't stopped them. They're now mapped, tracked, and teams in countries from Morocco to Pakistan watch, count, and mobilize against growing swarms of desert locusts in an effort to destroy them before they're fully formed. But some still get through. This is Beyond the Headlines. I'm your host, The National's foreign editor, James Haynes-Young, and this week, we're talking about the unstoppable plagues of locusts. This year has been bad for swarms. Good rains along the Red Sea coastal plains in Eritrea and Sudan allowed two generations of breeding between October and February. Cyclones Makunu and Luban in May and October of 2018 led to mass breeding in Saudi Arabia's empty quarter and along the Yemeni-Oman border. In June, a swarm crossed the Mediterranean and hit Sardinia. More than 2,000 hectares of farmland, an area roughly the size of 1,200 football fields, was devoured. Farmers said that within days, there was little left to harvest. Teams are still on the ground in Saudi Arabia, mopping up the last of the clusters of locusts that crossed the Red Sea from Sudan earlier in the year. In May, the Jordanian Air Force was brought in to battle a swarm that had been blown up from the Gulf. In June, war-ravaged Yemen was also hit. But in a country that sees desert locusts as a delicacy, there was a glut of the usually expensive delight. On the streets of rebel-held Sana, traders sold locusts by the bucket load, and people took them home to roast. Today, in Pakistan's southeastern province of Sindh, cotton farmers are watching as clouds of locusts devour their crops. It's quite extraordinary how much they can eat. Uh, And I'll try to give you some kind of meaningful examples here. If we take uh, maybe a swarm the size of Rome, which is not a very big size swarm, it can eat the same amount of food as half of all of Italy in, in one day. And... If we take, let's say, the swarm the size of, of uh, Paris, France, it can similarly eat you know, the same amount of food as all the French people would eat in, in, in one day. So these, um, these swarms can consume a lot of food very quickly, and that can have a, a very dramatic impact on national food security in these countries. That's Keith Cressman, a senior locust forecasting officer at the UN's Food and Agriculture Organization headquarters in Rome. From its base in the Italian capital, 
the FAO Desert Locust Information Service, coordinate national responses around the world. Since the 1950s, they've been providing early warning information, but when a swarm does descend, they also help with the aftermath, talking to donors through the UN to raise needed money for support efforts. But where do swarms come from, and why do they form? Usually, locusts are solitary desert-dwelling creatures that forage off shrubs and bushes in some of the world's harshest environments. A sandy green colour, they can be hard to find and have little impact on their surroundings. In this state, they're prey of lizards, birds and desert carnivores. But when they start to cluster, the locusts start to change. That changes both physical and social. Scientists refer to the new state as a locust becoming gregarious. Well, they've been around for, for hundreds of thousands of years, if not longer. They're, they're an extremely old um, pest, one of the oldest um, insects that we have on, on the planet. Cockroaches are another one that's very old. But they are constantly surviving in parts of the desert at very low numbers. So they're always with us. But then, of course, when uh, there are good rains in the desert and when there are optimal conditions, that's when really they increase in number and they become kind of a bit more visible to everyone. As a solitary insect, they're, they're um, threatened by predators, birds and lizards and these things in the desert. So their color is camouflaged. So the adults are brown, so they blend in with the sand of the desert. Um, the, the wingless hoppers are green. Uh, they blend in with the natural vegetation that, the, that they're um, being sheltered in. But however, if they increase in number, and so they become kind of concentrations or groups, uh, they become much more easily visible to these predators. So by changing the color into bright colors, they, they tend to be um, kind of warning these predators that, hey, look, we're, we're not very tasty. Um, you should avoid us um, and, and please don't bother us. They do that by the hoppers changing from, from a kind of a green camouflage color to a um, bright yellow color with black um, spots. Professor Stephen Simpson has been studying locusts for 20 years, both in labs and in the field. He tells us about the biological and social changes that take place when locusts go from their solitary to their social forms. In their jackal form, which is their shy, solitary um, grasshopper form, you would hardly know they were there because they live at very low population densities. They're typically camouflaged, so they're hard to see, and they behave in a really shy way. They avoid each other and they live their lives as solitary grasshoppers. And um, occasionally, however, and this is the really interesting phenomenon, they get brought together and they change and they turn from being Dr. Jekyll into Mr. Hyde and they become these um, mass migrating swarming animals. And they're the things that, that people are familiar with, as you say, flying in huge numbers to invade farmlands and cities. Or when they're juveniles, when they're, they're immature, they hop and form these massive bands of marching hoppers. A remarkable change. And in fact, if you take the desert locust, which is perhaps the most famous of the plague-forming locust species, and if you were to take two sisters um, from the same pot of eggs laid in the ground by their mother, and you were to rear one in a crowd and one on her own, then you would barely recognize them as being the same animal. They look so different. They're reared on their own, they'll turn into this green um, solitary animal. And if they're reared in a crowd, 
then they become brightly colored and they aggregate and they look so different that originally they were classified as being different species until it was appreciated that they're actually the same animal and packed within the same genome is the capacity to end up in one or, or the other form and that's purely a function of whether or not you've been crowded or indeed whether your parents were crowded um, before you were born or at least laid into the ground as an egg. The other area that we've spent a lot of time working on is understanding how um, collective behavior emerges from the interactions between individual locus. So you bring them together once they change into the gregarious form, but they suddenly, you know, they'll be milling around in their large numbers in a crowd, but going nowhere in particular. And then suddenly as if of a single mind, they'll start to move collectively through the habitat, marching if they're still juveniles. And we spend a lot of time working on how that phenomenon happens. And to do that, we worked with statistical physicists and mathematicians who model how interactions between moving particles can lead to emergent behaviors. It turns out that the key local rule of interaction, if you get locusts, you bring them together and you get them at a critical local density, they'll all collectively start to move together and they'll move um, in serried ranks, they'll march through the habitat as if they had leaders and they don't. Um, their rule is keep moving roughly parallel to your neighbors, um, effectively chasing the one in front and moving away from the one behind and keeping parallel to those on either side. We found that the reason they're doing that is because when they get into large population densities, they soon run out of protein. And protein is a, a powerful um, nutrient for locusts and indeed for humans. Um, they have, as do we, a specific appetite for protein. And when they're deficient in protein, they will eat the nearest source of high quality protein. And if that happens to be your um, colleague locust in front of you, then you'll eat them. So cannibalism driven by a specific appetite for protein drives mass migration in these collective swarms. Once they swarm, locusts become a ravenous and highly mobile cloud blowing along the wind. They're not like a bird that, that's a, um, an active flyer. They're a passive flyer. They drift with the wind. So they are just being blown downwind by the wind. They, they fly roughly uh, up to about 2,000 meters um, above the ground. After that, it gets too cold for them. So it means that there are some natural barriers. Uh, it's difficult for them to get over the Atlas Mountains in northwest Africa. Um, they don't get into Central Asia because they can't get over the, the Hindu Kush mountains or the Himalayas because they're too tall. They have, they have to kind of go around the mountains in northern Oman, um, and also they kind of go around the mountains in, in um, Yemen and parts of southwest um, Saudi Arabia. Somewhere between about 150 to 200 kilometers or more. Um, swarms fly during the day. So they fly um, shortly after sunrise. They have to first warm up. 
because they're cold-blooded, so they take an hour or two to warm up, and so they're, they're basking in the sun, then they start to take off about maybe two hours after sunrise. They'll fly throughout the day, and then they will land um, just at the end of the day before sunset, and uh, they will roost in the trees, um, so where they're a little bit safe and protected from predators, and they will feed um, during the evening, so they're then ready to fly the next day. Of course, they will fly at much longer distances if they're flying over water. So uh, in the past, uh, the longest flight that uh, we have um, in, in recorded history is from West Africa to the Caribbean. So they essentially flew across the Atlantic Ocean, um, and they did that in 10 days. So how, how they did that was that they, as they were flying, of course, they did get tired, so they, they rested on, 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 the, uh, on some of the ships, on, on the decks of ships, because they were having to, to fly over one of the shipping routes. Uh, or they would, a swarm would land on the surface of, of the ocean, and then a second swarm would land on top of that and rest, and then that second swarm would take off while the first swarm obviously drowned. The impact of swarms continues to be so devastating that the UN spends millions a year in funding research, monitoring, and coordinating multinational responses. In labs around the world, scientists continue to study the creatures, hoping to find a way to kill, disrupt, and stop plagues. A major surge in locusts between 2003 and 2005 cost 750 million US dollars to battle, including food aid provided to communities who had lost all their crops. So how do the FAO monitor these clusters and swarms? It's almost a bit too late when you find them. What we have to do is take steps much uh, more in advance of that. And the, the countries, there's about 30 countries that have to manage desert locusts every year. And there's probably another 30 countries that could be affected if the situation really turns, you know, into kind of the worst scenario. And the, the, the management strategy that has been adopted by all of these countries and promoted by FAO is, is prevention, preventive control. And what that means is that the, the situation in the desert needs to be constantly monitored by the countries themselves. Each of these 30 frontline countries have uh, national locust programs. They're usually within the Ministry of Agriculture, the plant protection departments. And their job basically is to go out in four-wheel drive vehicles and try to find that green vegetation that sprouts up after rainfall and to check to see if there's any locust in it. Now, most of the time, locusts are in low numbers, so it's not a problem. But uh, when they do detect increases in numbers, and when they see this concentration and this change from a solitarist to gregarious, that's the time to undertake um, what we call preventive control treatments. And that's basically spraying um, these small concentrations of locusts, and they might only be less than a hectare in size, or there might be a couple dozen of them. But if they, they can find these um, concentrations and treat them, then we prevent the, the swarms from forming and we prevent plagues from occurring. I suppose an example, uh, an analogy would be um, forest fires. So if you can find, you know, the forest fire when it's just, before it's a forest fire, when it's just a small brush fire, campfire, and you can put it out, then it doesn't turn into a forest fire. If you fail that, you have a forest fire to, to deal with. And if you fail again that, then you have kind of these giant wildfires that can spread very quickly. So, so it's much the same with desert locusts. It's monitoring, doing a very good job of monitoring, collecting the data in real time, transmitting it to the countries and to FAO for monitoring and forecasting and early warning, and then trying to put out these, um, 
these uh, locus infestations before they turn into something big. Professor Simpson pointed out that both documenting past outbreaks and using new technologies like satellites and AI make monitoring potential breakouts easier. I'll give you some staggering figures. If, if, you, if you consider the desert locust across uh, the entirety of North Africa and into um, Western Asia, um, what you have there is a zone which historically has had um, locust swarms invade it. And that area is around about 31 million square kilometres. Now, within that, about half that area, about 15 million square kilometres, is where you can find the solitary um, form of the locust. So they typically live in a more restricted area, but they can invade a, a, a much bigger area when they become swarm forming. But if you look within that still huge area, 15 million square kilometres, Historically, outbreaks have happened in the same places scattered across um, sort of sub-Saharan Africa. And that, if you total up all of those historical outbreak zones where, where all the major plagues ever recorded have come from, that's actually a much smaller area. That's, that's about 250,000 square kilometres. So you've gone from 31 million to 250,000 square kilometres. So then what you can do is you can keep a particular eye on those areas, initially by looking from um, satellite images to see where in those potential um, outbreak zones there has recently been um, a flourishing of vegetation, for example, after rain. So if you've got a really good idea of weather patterns and you've got satellite imagery that's detecting greenery on the ground, you can start to hone in on particular known outbreak areas. And then you need to get down to a finer scale. So you can still do that with some of the satellite imagery available. Um, because what you need then is to be looking at the scale at which locusts live when they're moving around from plant to plant in their local habitat. Um, and then you, having honed in even further, you send out field crews who then start to survey on the ground. And it's then that you can actually start to get the evidence you need early enough to to begin to, to start actually treating um, with loc either localised insecticidal sprays um, or using some of the biopesticides that, that are now available, such as um, fungal agents that are specifically targeted to killing grasshoppers and locusts. The FAO is now looking at drones and how they can assist local teams on the ground in finding and monitoring locust gatherings. All of this has vastly improved the ability of countries and the international community to battle local swarms. Mr. Kresman says that in the 1980s, a swarm crossed from Chad to Sudan. It stayed six months and was so large that when it crossed Khartoum, it blotted out the sun for several hours as billions of bugs flew by. With prevention, plagues happen less often and for shorter periods of time. Rarely do we now see a biblical level plague. But how can we actually stop a swarm? It's a combination of measures, but mainly it's pesticides. There's a biopesticide called green mussel that targets the locust without harming other wildlife. 
but it's a naturally occurring pesticide, and that makes it hard to produce, and it also acts slowly. But then there's always chemical pesticides. With ground teams spraying swarms and planes overhead blanketing the locust clouds, they can be effective tools. But they also have a big impact on habitats and already fragile ecosystems. This is a type of response that has to be done. For uh, Just coming back to the example of the Jordanians, they, there was just a very unusual um, southerly wind um, that carried locusts from Saudi, some swarms, couple swarms from Saudi Arabia uh, northwards into Jordan. Um, usually don't have those type of winds um, at that time of year, but you know, maybe it's part of climate change, who knows. But they did arrive um, uh, over two successive days, and the Jordanians responded extremely quickly, first by ground teams, and then they mobilized um, aircraft as well to knock those um, locust swarms and, and, and treat them. And this is the type of response um, that um, should be done with desert locusts, but it does uh, require advanced planning and you know having these contingency plans in place that I mentioned earlier and, and having a base level of resources that can be immediately deployed for, for desert locust control. There is an environmental impact to these pesticides. You need to try and target these um, events at, at the source before they become too big. So by the time you're trying to control wing swarms, then you're in real trouble. So then you're having to blanket spray huge areas. You're going to have to stockpile insecticides. They'll be left in the environment. There's all sorts of terrible environmental problems that that, that causes. You're much better acting early. If you act early, you also have more time. So you can start deploying some of these slower acting but much more environmentally friendly biopesticides like the fungal agents. Um, and the other reason, um, well, in, in fact, the reason why I ended up in locust biology at all, um, at least looking at swarming biology, was they banned dieldrin in the late 1980s, which was the principal chemical control agent used. And they banned it because of its terrible environmental impacts. So what's the long-term strategy? Can we eradicate locusts? And should we, if we could? Well, I think the answer to that is no, we shouldn't, because pulses of large amounts of um, biological material um, is a really significant part of the habitats within which locusts live. So desert environments are typically um, subject to pulses of of rain and pulses of um, biological material, if you like, um, fertilizer. And locust swarms provide that and they provide an abundance of food for um, birds and lizards and other predators um, whose populations long-term rely on these occasional, if somewhat unpredictable pulses of of, um, biomass coming in the form of locust swarms. So uh, removing them entirely from um, fragile habitats is, I, I would say, risky. So it's, it's really a matter of how best to um, manage the relationship between these natural events and human um, land use and human livelihoods and doing that in a way which is not aiming to eradicate locusts altogether, although inadvertently we managed to do that, at least with the Rocky Mountain locust in North America, for reasons we still don't understand, that entire 
species, which used to be a massive plague former in North America, um, went extinct. And it was probably to do with changes in grasslands and land use um, occasioned by you know, European habitation. So no, we don't want to get rid of them. We just want to be able better to predict and um, manage them and to try and distract them from um, invading areas that matter a lot to us. His years in the lab have also shown Professor Simpson something else remarkable about a locust. What a swarm can teach you about human obesity. We've since gone on, and and actually what I do now is I run the Charles Perkins Centre, which is dedicated to understanding obesity, diabetes and cardiovascular disease in humans. We went on to show that that same protein appetite in us has driven the human obesity crisis as a result of our diluting protein in our food supply by adding in lots of processed fats and carbohydrates. We don't eat one another, but we increase our food consumption to gain limiting protein um, in a protein diluted food supply. And that turns out to be a principal reason for um, the emergence of obesity over the last 50 or 60 years, phenomenon that we call protein leverage. The battle between mankind and locusts has been raging since we first settled down and started growing our own crops thousands of years ago. Today we have high-tech tools at our disposal, but in the face of a major swarm, we're still just left to pick up the pieces. Beholden to weather patterns and rainfall, country's best hope is to get so effective at monitoring that they can head off a swarm before it forms. At least for now, there's no way that we're going to end the fight for good. And so monitors like Mr. Cressman will have to continue coordinating the global effort to protect communities and crops around the world. Thanks this week to Keith Crespin at the FAO Desert Locust Information Service in Rome and Professor Stephen Simpson at the Charles Perkins Centre at Sydney University. This is Beyond the Headlines. Subscribe to the programme by tapping the subscribe button in your podcast app. Follow more of our coverage at our website, thenational.ae. We were produced this week by Isha Khan with assistance from Hannah Finity. I've been your host, James Haynes-Young.